Resurrection Sunday, um, I try and stay clear of the word Easter because it has um, sort of refers to uh, a sort of pagan god, but Resurrection Sunday's coming and, and hopefully there's a feeling of anticipation in your heart, not just a sort of a feeling of obligation to buy uh, everyone eggs, even the people that don't want to uh, have them, but hopefully there's that anticipation that we're going to come together and make this annual celebration that Jesus came back from the dead and there's this victory over sin and death and the prospect of eternal life. And we have been going through the last few weeks through divine questions. We've been unearthing particular moments in scripture where God asks a question and it provokes in us to reflect on our own lives. And it's obvious to me as we approach resurrection that it would be good to search scriptures for uh, questions perhaps that Jesus asks and there are lots of times in his final moments where uh, this provocative teacher asks a question um, as he faces death and so this, mo- this morning I wanted to explore a specific question and a, and a question that um, I don't think I fully resolved in my heart Uh, But hopefully it will be something that um, causes in you to reflect um, on your own faith. There is this moment where Jesus, the ruler of the coming kingdom, you know, it's uh, God's kingdom and and, uh, it's advancing um, and all creation have been groaning for it to arrive. And then he encounters Pontius Pilate, the the embodiment of Rome. He is the representative of Caesar in Jerusalem. He is the personification of power and uh, of empire in the capital city of Israel. And so we have this encounter and it's fascinating. Um, And theoretically, it, it should be a peak moment where we get these two Two kings almost, uh, 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 arguing and debating and and looking at incredibly important matters. And uh, um, if you've got a Bible, turn to John chapter 18. It says this in John chapter 18, verse 28. And we're going to read a little bit and then explore it, and then read a little bit and explore it. And it says this, um, verse 28. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace. Why? because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked them, "Uh, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. And in verse 32, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. 
So if we are familiar with the story um, of the Passion of the Christ, we'll know that he gets arrested uh, in a garden. Anyone know who betrayed him? Judas, excellent, and a name that everyone knows and no one ever calls their kids. Um, it's a, a, a fascinating guy. Uh, and so Jesus is arrested in the garden. He's arrested by armed guards. There's a sense of aggression. There's a sense of fury. Um, and there's a sense of indignation uh, from the Jewish leaders. Um, and he is first delivered to uh, the kind of old high priest, uh, so this is the high priest that used to rule in the temple. And that, that's Annas. And, and Annas has this conversation with Jesus. Um, and surprisingly, that doesn't go particularly well. And so he then goes to the current high priest, which is Caiaphas. Um, and uh, 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 these two high priests are related. Um, and so Jesus then goes to the current high priest, who's uh, ruling in the temple. And uh, uh, Jesus and Caiaphas have this discussion and uh and then we get to what we've looked at today so this nazarene has had three years of ministry roughly he has been claiming to be god if you've been paying attention he has been denouncing the religious hierarchy there's this wonderful so john the baptist keeps calling the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and Sadducees like brood of vipers and nasty things like that. And Jesus just runs with what his cousin's been saying. And he says all sorts of uh, revealing stuff uh, about the, uh, the Jewish hierarchy as well. And he's been performing all sorts of unexpected miracles. Miracles that if you are a God-fearing Jew that likes your Old Testament, perhaps particularly the Levitical laws, he's unsettling. He heals people on the Sabbath, he touches the lepers, he deals with Gentiles, he does all sorts of things that are slightly like this and better people you could be healing, Jesus, than these people on the fringes of society. And so these miracles that Jesus is performing have brought confusion and delight in the people that don't have a great religious baggage. Um, and uh, rather indignation in the people that really feel that uh, miracles should be done in a particular order. And Jesus just constantly defies expectation. They constantly seek to pin him down. They constantly seek to cause him to be blasphemous. And Jesus kind of wiggles out and he uh, uh, says things in a clever way. Um, and he just makes almost it worse for himself by unsettling these people um, that uh, hold the power of, of, of life in their hands. And so the Jewish leaders take this guy that is not playing by the rules, that is not doing what they want, that is not uh, um, being obsequious towards them, and he takes them to the Roman ruler, takes them, this troublemaker, to the person who uh, the power of Rome kind of goes through. And they hope that Jesus will be charged by this Roman uh, with Roman law and then he'll be disgracefully executed by these unbelievers. It is this very deliberate attempt by these Jewish leaders to utterly discredit 
Jesus. They want him ultimately to be crucified on a cross. And, and in the Old Testament it says, you know, cursed is anyone that sort of hangs on a tree. And they really want to undo everything Jesus is to his people. Show him to how contemptible he really is. And, and, and this is uh, why the text says these Jewish leaders did all this um, so that uh, it would fulfill what Jesus said was coming. But as we read this, I don't know whether you um, notice, there is an incredible irony in this moment. John really lays it on thick if you're paying attention. We have this palace and the Jewish leaders and Jesus and probably an armed guard come in. And the, the start of this palace is like courtyards and colonnades. You know, there are fountains and columns and seats and probably peacocks and flowers and that sort of things. And there's no roof covering. There's nothing to keep the rain off, which in our country would be utter lunacy. But uh, in the Middle East, it's not so uh, prohibitive. And, and so they come to this place with sort of colonnades and courtyards and sort of open-air buildings. Um, and rabbinic law says that's fine. Rabbinic law says that these Jews can meet Gentiles where there is the, the, the canopy of the air over their heads and that they can meet there without any need uh, uh, to go through a cleansing uh, scheme, no need to sort of uh, do sacrifices or, or wait for a, a period of uncleanliness to go. However, the moment there's a roof there, these religious Jews are faced with the problem because suddenly when they meet a Gentile under a roof, there is a moment of uncleanliness and they are prohibited sort of from uh, things like Passover feast for seven days. And so we've got these really pedantic Jews wanting to meet Pontius Pilate, but they decide they won't go into the palace. They will call Pilate out. Now, we will learn a little bit of Pilate later on, but Pilate seems very obliging because he actually comes out to them so that they won't be made ceremonially unclean. And um, he asks, so what charges are you bringing against this Jesus? This uh, uh, man that you've brought in, that has probably stories of him have already reached his ears. And they said, so, so what, what's the charge against him? And the Pharisees know they've got nothing. They come up, they've got no answer. They, they, they've got nothing that Jesus can be charged with in Roman law. You know, he's been blasphemous and this, that and the other in their eyes. So under Jewish law, they've got something, but under Roman law, which they want to see prosecuted so Jesus can be executed, um, they've got nothing. And so we've got this wonderful uh, phrase. Um, it says, um, can you not hear... Just the, this beautiful language. If he were not a criminal, would we have not handed him over to you? There's nothing there. They've got bupkus, but they are creating this impression um, that uh, Jesus is obviously a criminal and they don't need to explain themselves to Pilate. And um, so they are like, there's this hint of 
forcefulness and vagueness. Don't you know who we are? We wouldn't waste your time with uh, trivial matters. You need to see this through. And so the Pharisees know that they've got nothing, but uh, they, 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 they try and uh, uh, force the issue anyway. And I wonder if you're struck by what people have been struck with for 2,000 years in this thing, in this passage. We have Pharisees, Jewish leaders, they want to see a man who is innocent in Roman law, killed under Roman law, but they're obsessed with ritual purity. They want to kill an innocent man, but they are fixated on not becoming unclean. There is just a rampant hypocrisy that these guys want to kill someone but they don't want to get their hands dirty it's it's actually incredible and as resurrection sunday approaches I, we would do well to allow these moments to reflect on our lives because it's easy for believers to be the same it's easy for us to become personally vested in selfish agendas, you know, things that we want to see happen, and then have a cover of good Christian practice as some sort of pretense or delusion. It's a bit like, uh, I was trying to think different ways to illustrate it. It's a bit like, um, and we're getting to the stage where my sons are coming into conflict with more uh, each other recently and it's a bit like one of them punching the other in the face and then when the parent comes up and going well I've made my bed what are you complaining about and you're like no there's a much bigger issue in the room than whether you've made the bed you've hurt your brother and the similar thing is is that Christians can often pursue something that is really dangerous and terrible and loveless and evil but then we can say but we've made our bed Jesus what are you complaining about and Jesus goes no you've missed the whole thing we can come to church on time and God bless you for all of you that made that this morning but we can treat others badly you know fight for parking spaces, not that any of you have done that. Five for parking spaces in the car park and like to make it into church. And the, the whole thing is, can't you see the uh, incongruence of being horrible to someone and then thinking coming to church on time's important? There is a much bigger issue. We can keep our speech clean. You know, uh, my parents are hot on words. And uh, I knew, like, uh, even in Star Wars and stuff like that, the moment when something a little unsavoury would come up and I would wince because I'd know my mum or dad would huff uh, uh, when the word came up. But, uh, but we can be obsessed about how clean our language is and what words we use. And perhaps we can tut at when other people use words we don't like. But then we use our tongues to put each other down. We gossip and we fight, and we say sorts of nasty things, and we miss the whole point. It's not about keeping our language exact, it's about being generous and kind, about not being hypocrites. 
We can love our Bibles and read them inside and out, but then never live them out. And we looked at that when we looked at the book of James recently. We cannot allow the Bible to actually change our behaviour rather than just reading the Bible in a year. And we can pray in public, you know, you, we give invitations sometimes uh, uh, to pray out loud and to prophesy and to speak in tongues. And, uh, and we do that here and yet in the privacy of our own hearts, we're just full of anxiety and worry because we never actually trust God for anything. And this hypocrisy is something that these Pharisees are blatantly guilty of. They're killing Jesus and worried about having unclean hands. And the same can be true for Christians too. We should not be like these Pharisees. We should live all the aspects of our lives, all the different components, with a delight in goodness, in, in, in delight in goodness in the big picture. And we should be rejecting showy religiousness, as if somehow God cares more about one thing than the other. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2. says this Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 don't let anyone judge you by what you'll eat or drink have a hallelujah isn't that freeing give me a hallelujah hallelujah you don't have to worry about it no one judges you on what you eat or drink or with regards to a religious festival you know, you make it up as you go along, it's fine. A new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. That's a bit dangerous, isn't it, when you can celebrate the Sabbath when you want or when your group decides. These, and this is true for so much of the Old Testament. I think if you take this as an understanding for the whole Testament, you're doing really well. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The Old Testament is a shadow of the New Testament. Don't get really uptight about all the different things in the Old Testament that we should be observing, because it is a shadow of what is coming. The reality is found in Christ. Don't get obsessed over garments mixed with different threads. Look at Jesus. That will give you a much clearer idea of what God wants. Verse uh, 18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility, and obviously we don't have anyone like that here, but in other churches they've probably got that. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen, and they are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. Sort of super spiritual people. The sort of people that got obsessed, perhaps with the end times or uh, different things like that. They have lost connection with their head. They are deluded. They have lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows, and God causes it to grow. If you're connected with Jesus, things are going to go well for you, because you are going to get fed and nurtured and nourished. 
Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? And then this. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I wonder if you've ever found a Christian like that, who's particularly um, exercised by uh, what we should eat and what we should touch and where we should go. These rules, which have uh, to do with things that are all destined to perish with youth, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom. And this is very clever. There are Christians and believers who become obsessed with minutiae, and it seems really religious, and it seems really full of self-discipline. And suddenly the rest of us feel like slovenly losers who who can't really get it together. And you're like, these guys are really impressive. You know, they get up at five o'clock in the morning, pray for four hours, go to work while fasting, and, uh, and then do something impressive in the evening. And Jesus says, this uh, obsession with these little details, as if somehow they are the most important thing. It has an appearance of wisdom. It it has, um, and it goes on, with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And basically that's a complete dismissal of the entire monk uh, tradition, which is like hundreds of years, uh, maybe even thousands of years, like, These things don't have any value. Be connected with Jesus. People interested in legalistic minutiae may sound compelling. They may sound religious. They may make you feel guilty and that you should be doing something about it, but it is the opposite of the gospel. The Son of God died and rose again so that we could get rid of all that, that we could be finishing with a pedantic faith, so that we could no longer live in perpetual fear of accidentally upsetting a God who's got some sort of itchy trigger finger. That's not the gospel. Life is about the condition of our heart, about being connected to Jesus, about him transforming our sentiments and our uh, longings and working this out in loving actions. That's what the gospel's about. When the Spirit drives us not towards frowning at anyone that doesn't come in the door at 10.30, but when we are brilliant at being forgiving, when people hurt us and we just allow that to wash over us and say, you know what, I'm going to let that go and not count that against you. When we are generous and creative in our generosity, when we don't just give what we have to, but we give with all that we can. And when our holiness, when our righteousness, when our good behaviour comes from a longing to be nearer Jesus rather than to catch other Christians out who are not doing it and then we can frown and tut and make ourselves feel superior. Let me add some colour to this idea of the Roman governor. So it says this in... uh, it's a biography of Jerusalem. Like, Jerusalem is an incredible city and it has seen some uh, 
incredible things over the years. Um, and it's certainly not for the faint-hearted. But it says this in, uh, uh, in the section. The Roman prefect, guarded by his auxiliary troops and watched by a tense crowd, held court on the praetorium, the raised platform outside Herod's citadel, the Roman headquarters near today's Jaffa Gate. Pontius Pilate, the guy that we've just started reading about, the guy that sort of quizzed Jesus. Pontius Pilate was an aggressive, tactless uh, martinet out of his depth in Judea. He was already loathed in Jerusalem, notorious for his veniality, violence, theft, assaults, abuse, endless executions and savage ferocity. You can see why the Jews handed Jesus over to him because it sounds like odds are Pontius Pilate was going to kill him. Um, so he was a nasty piece of work. Even one of the Herodian princes called him vindictive with a furious temper. This is not a description of God. This is a description of Pontius Pilate. Some of us need to allow that uh, uh, to see that this is what man is like. God is nothing like that. But man is very good at keeping count, at being angry and uh, uh, keeping uh, score. And that's what Pontius Pilate was like. He had already outraged the Jews by ordering his troops to march into Jerusalem, displaying their shields with images of the emperor. Herod Antipas led delegations requesting their removal. Very sort of political, sort of bit of negotiation, peaceful. Always inflexible and cruel, Pilate refused. When more Jews protested, he unleashed his guards. But the delegates lay on the ground and bared their necks. Pilate then removed the offending images. More recently, he had killed the Galilean rebels whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And that, that bit's in scripture. So we find in, we find in Pontius Pilate a nasty piece of work. History bears that out. There are other sources outside scripture that give us an idea of what this Roman governor was like. Violent, ambitious, unsympathetic. And he reveled in the power that he had um, and he was quick to gain more whenever he could. This is the man that we're talking about. And this is the man that questions Jesus. And he has a disregard of the Jewish leaders and their ideas and their faith. And he has an enormous sense of his own importance. And he believes in the supremacy of Rome because it will help him get what he wants. And now we're going to continue this passage in John chapter 18. If you've got your Bible still open. John chapter 18 verse 33. Listen. To Pontius Pilate. Pilate then went back inside the palace and he summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus knows who this is he's talking to. And he goes, Is that your own idea? Jesus asked. Or did others talk to you about me? Pilate, in his absolute disdain for this people, says, Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What is it you have done? 
She's got this disdain and this vague interest in this uh, famous teacher. What is this you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to protect, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And Pilate, not the sharpest tool in the book, but in the uh, uh, box, says, oh, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So we have Jesus, son of God, facing the top dog of the area, the fullness of Rome in Jerusalem embodied in Pontius Pilate. And Pilate looks up and down this character Jesus and he sees a man in simple, plain clothes no trappings of office at all and he's probably blood-stained because he was arrested and questioned and hit already so jesus does not cut an impressive figure in the palace uh, that uh, pontius pilate is in and he asks with that sort of unbelieving sneer if he really is a jewish king you Look at you. Look at the state of you. Wouldn't even go out and walk my dogs looking like that. And they talk. And Pilate makes claim, makes plain that Jesus does not conform to his idea of power, does not conform to his idea of leadership, does not conform to any of his ideas of what it means to be in charge. Are you Jesus? Who are you? You're nothing. You're like something on the bottom of my boot. But Jesus still gives Pilate a chance. He doesn't shut him down, but he gives these mysterious answers that if Pilate had an ins, uh, an ounce of uh, intelligence, just he, he had a milliliter of a desire to know truth, then he would be drawn in, and Jesus would uh, uh, be bringing him into something wonderful and life-changing. But that is not our Pontius Pilate. Jesus says, is this idea of leadership, of power, of authority, something you've come up with or is it someone else's idea where where'd you get these ideas of what it looks like to be in charge and i really like that question where do we get ideas of what it means to be in charge who inspires us with what leadership looks like and Pilate is unsettled you know he knows very well that it's all about aggression and might and fury and being unpredictable. Um, and he says, you know what, your guy, your own people have brought you in here. What are, you, what, are your, what are the charges against you? I need to know. And Jesus' wisdom is just conspicuous, and, it, and, and it's just intriguing, and it, it hopefully draws a smile from every Christian that knows him well in their hearts. He goes, my, my authority, my domain, my power, it's of another realm. It, it's different. And Pilate tries to pin him down. 
And uh, he says, oh, you know, your, your kingdom's in this world and you're trying to advance it here. And, and Jesus goes, no, your thinking is utterly topsy-turvy. Your whole perspective on life is wrong. Jesus already has absolute power. He was there at the creation of the world. He was there putting the stars into place and forming the earth and bringing out the, the, the seas and the mountains. And this life is not about that. He didn't come to exercise uh, this sort of dominion that Pontius Pilate is all about. Jesus came into, uh, came into Bethlehem, came into Israel to tell the truth and to divide humanity. And it's true. When confronted with Jesus, people either discover what he says and love it, or they reject it and reject Jesus. He is the crux of the entire of history. He is the point at which everyone is divided one way or another. There is no one that is not sifted one way or another by this man. He is the most important person to have ever lived. And his purpose was to divide all of humanity in the chosen and the lost. If Pilate had been interested in someone other than himself, Pilate would have been captivated by Jesus' mystery, by whispers of his identity, and he would have been drawn in. But that is not how it worked out. If you've got a Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is wonderful. You know, I do get sick of my own voice. And I do get tired of talking sometimes. And... Uh, I try and make scripture interesting and engaging as best as I can, but this, this just stands on its own. You can read this, and if you allow it to speak to you, you can just feel it change you. So it says this, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, anything you can think of. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is not just the most important person in human history. He's the most important person in all of creation. He made it all and it is all about him. He is before all things. He is the son that was begotten but never created. He is the son of God, but he, there was never a time which he didn't exist. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body. Some of you think the pastor or the vicar or the priest 
is there in charge of the church. That is nonsense. Thankfully. He is the head of the body and the body is the church. He is the head of this fellowship. He is the beginning and the firstborn. The firstborn from among the dead. He was the first one to be killed and then came back again because death could not hold him. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. He had it already but he he got it because of all this. God was pleased. I love the way that that God delights and has joy and is pleased. God was pleased. It thrilled him. To have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. God got pleasure from finding himself in his son. And through him, reconciled to himself all things. God loved sending Jesus so that we could all know the Father. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Making peace through his blood shed on a cross, this violence, this nastiness, this horrific injury and death inflicted on Jesus made peace. It confounds every wise person, every intellectual who is seated on a, on a throne of self-satisfaction. God made peace through blood and the violence of the cross. And then listen to these words over you. And over us, we were alienated from God. We, had, we wanted nothing to do with him. And we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behaviour. We didn't like God, we didn't want him in our lives, we wanted to do our own thing. But now, he has reconciled you and me, us, by Christ's physical body, through death, listen to this, to present you holy in his sight, you stand holy in God's sight, not because you come to church at 10.30, not because you give a tenth of your earnings away, not because you uh, come to home group or read your Bible or pray, but because of what Jesus did. Without blemish and free from accusation. Those are some words that Paul wrote. You have to be inspired by God Almighty to have the chutzpah to write that. To have the audacity to say that Jesus cleanses us from all sins and we can stand in the presence of God without fear of accusation. No human uh, pen would write that voluntarily. It is something that God has ordained. I am not getting through this sermon. Um, I've got, um, yes. So we're going to draw it to an abrupt end in a way that's slightly rude. Um, but we're going to do this bit. So there's this, su- this stunning summary of Jesus that I love to read and again and again. And we are reminded that this son is the image of the father. We're not talking about a distorted image in a puddle. We're not talking about looking at yourself in the mirror in the toilets. We're not talking about creating some sort of 3D model of God, and that's Jesus. It's not like that. When Paul says that Jesus um, is the exact representation of God, he means the exact representation. 
Jesus is exactly like the Father in every characteristic. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father because the Son is the same as the Father. Jesus is so like his dad that it is uncanny. Jesus was involved in creation. He brings everything together and his death was so incredible, so outlandish, so outrageous that it reconciles us us with God. No matter how well we behave, no matter how we mind our P's and Q's and how fastidious we are in our religion, nothing can do what the death of Jesus did. Salvation is not about rule following. The Jews went down that cul-de-sac and it got them nowhere. It is not about strength and power that the Romans thought. You know, taking people by force. Both the Jews and the Romans got it wrong and Jesus brings a new way. These are other people's ideas of what salvation looks like and sometimes we judge Jesus with these other ideas. Oh, Jesus doesn't look like that. And Jesus says, what are you thinking? Who told you to think like that? It certainly wasn't me. I tell you what leadership, authority and salvation looks like and it is beautiful and the Jews don't understand it and the Romans thinks it's foolishness. And that's why the gospel is so beautiful and that is why it is good to be so excited about a couple of weeks time because it is something that no other religion, no other faith, no other philosophy, no other uh, uh, mental discipline has got that we have. Eternal life is a gracious gift of God and it's bought through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This 2,000 year old story of someone dying on a cross still has potency today. And so we don't chase after wealth, we don't chase after recognition, we don't chase after comfort. These are things that are passing away. This is the kingdom that is and it's not going to stay. All these things that our friends and relatives and neighbours think are important, they're not because it's going. It has no future. It has no prospect. Jesus is looking for a kingdom that is coming, that is eternal, and Jesus invites each of us, think about these things. Base your life on that. Have ambitions in that respect. And so we wait with bated breath for the physical return of Jesus our King and his never-ending rule. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, it thrills us to consider that we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in a couple of weeks, this sort of annual memorial where just we have a little bit more focus on this centrality of our faith. And Heavenly Father, I pray that we would again fall in love with Jesus, that we would again fall in love with this person that the Jews got frustrated with and the Romans just couldn't understand. Lord God, I pray that we would not be obsessed with wrong ideas of living and confused ideas of authority. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have saved us out of pernickety religion and into generosity and goodness and largeness of heart. Lord God, I thank you that you have saved us from any idea of uh, might and aggression and power being the way forward that you brought 
humility, just as Psalm 45 said you would. Truth and humility, these are the bases for the Messiah. And Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that this week that we would remind ourselves that this Jesus, his kingdom's not of this earth. This ki- his kingdom's not of this time. That all that we see and hear is just transitory. We're just passing through it. It has no lasting importance. And Lord God, I pray that we would long for eternity, for the things of you. That we would be a different people that walk this earth. That we have not copied our ideas from the clever people around us. But we have received the truth directly from our Messiah. Lord God, I thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.